coming out on a very cold January morning here, and I hope you're blessed with the time in the Word. God's Word does not return void. And let's see what He has to say this morning. Let's pray. Uh, Lord, as we get ready to teach, as always, Lord, You teach, we listen through Your Spirit, and let it not just be something we hear, we mark, we underline, but we live it. We truly live it in all that we say and do in Your name. Amen. Okay, we're in the middle of Acts 14, going to be picking up here in verse 8. Paul and Barnabas on one of their missionary journeys, and they're running into opposition. Jews are rejecting Jesus as the Messiah. They're taking the gospel to the Gentiles. Please remember, a Gentile is anybody who is not Jewish. And so they're moving from town to town because they're coming. Their lives are being threatened. Um, and so what's happening here is Paul and Barnabas are going from town to town. They spread the gospel. And they end up in a town called Lystra this morning. And this is in Acts 14, verse 8. It says, And in Lystra, a certain man without strength in his feet was sitting, a cripple from his mother's womb, who had never walked. This man heard Paul speaking. Paul, observing him intently and seeing that he had faith to be healed, said with a loud voice, Stand up straight on your feet. And he leapt and walked. Now, that's kind of an amazing thing. You have to think about this. This man has been a cripple since birth. This idea of the muscles which have atrophied, he would have had the muscles shrinking. And so this amazing miracle happens. And not just get up and stand, but as you see there in verse 10, he leaps and walks. That's huge. This is what the Lord does. He doesn't do a miracle halfway, and that's what I love about it. Now the question comes up, though. If this man could be healed, and God's miraculous power is there to heal him, do you ever wonder why it took so long to get to this point? You know, back in Acts 4, there was a man, very similar miracle, that was a lame man, crippled, and then he could miraculously walk. And the Bible says he was 40 years old. So it took 40 years for that miracle to happen. Go back to the Old Testament. you get Abraham and Sarah. Abraham, who's 100 years old. Sarah, who's 90, and they finally have their child. God has a tendency to have us wait. And I want to show you some passages on this. Can you go with me to Isaiah, please? Isaiah. If we know the Lord can move, we know the Lord can work, and we know the Lord can heal, sometimes we sit there and say, well, then why isn't he doing it sooner? See, the longer the Lord waits, it gives opportunities to prepare us for what he has in store, and also gives opportunity to bring him more glory. Think about this for a second. Let's say that that child that was born crippled all of a sudden is miraculously healed after a couple days. Not much there, right? Not many people are going to see it. But if this man back in Acts 4 sat by the gate for 40 years, that means for 40 years people saw this man. What a miracle that is. Think about Abraham and Sarah. Yeah, it would have been impressive if they had the baby at 50 and 40, 60 and 50, 70 and 60, 80, 90, but now 190. And that shows the Lord. Sometimes when the Lord waits, he gets more glory. Now, we don't see it from our perspective, because you have to remember, his definition of good is different than your definition of good. His time frame is different than your time frame. We have to trust his definition of good, and we have to trust his time frame. We are created to give him glory by pointing people towards Jesus Christ. And so, therefore, if the Lord waits, it's for his glory. We trust that. Does that make it easy? No. Some of you here this morning are waiting. You have a physical issue, you have an emotional issue, you have a spiritual issue, and you know and trust the Lord can step in, but He's not. And it leads to frustration. So let's talk about this idea of waiting. Isaiah 40, let's start right here in verse uh, 28. Have you not known, have you not heard, the everlasting God, the Lord, the creator of the ends of the earth, neither faints nor is weary? Aren't you thankful you serve a God that is not tired or faints? I love it says in the book of Isaiah that the Lord you serve does not sleep nor slumber. 
This is the Lord you serve. He is there full of strength for you. Verse 28, his understanding is unsearchable. He gives power to the weak. And to those who have no might, he increases strength. If you are here this morning and you are spiritually, emotionally, physically weak, verse 29 is for you. He gives power to the weak. And to those who have no might, he increases strength. Even the youths shall faint and be weary. Even young men shall utterly fall. That's talking about us trusting in ourselves. Oh, I can get through this. I can fix this. I can handle this. You can't. I can't. We will utterly fail and fall. Verse 31. But those who wait on the Lord, there's our word, wait, shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. See, if you go back to verse 28, you know this, you hear this, but then do you believe this? Do you believe that God is going to give strength to the weak? Do you believe that he's going to give power to the weak? Do you believe that you can't trust in yourself and it has to be him and you wait on this? His time frame is different. His definition of good is different, but you wait on that. One more passage of the same concept. Go with me to Psalm 27, please. Psalm 27. Here David writes about the same concept, this idea of waiting on the Lord. Let's go and start in verse 11 of Psalm 27. Teach me your way, O Lord, and lead me in a smooth path because of my enemies. Do not deliver me to the will of my adversaries, for false witnesses have risen against me, and such as breathe and out violence. I would have lost heart unless I had believed that I would see the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. Verse 13, I love that. I would have lost heart unless I had believed that I would see the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. What a beautiful passage there. This idea that I would have lost heart unless I believe and trust that the Lord is moving and working. Look at verse 14. Here's our words again. Wait on the Lord. Be of good courage. He shall strengthen your heart. Wait, I say, on the Lord. I just want to encourage you one more time. Just like the man in Acts 4, who was 40 years old, Abraham 100, Sarah 90, this man here in Acts 14, crippled from his mother's birth there. This idea of waiting on the Lord to move in your life. His definition of good is different. His time frame is different. But we trust that. The problem is, we don't want to wait on the Lord. We want something right here, right now. This is what I've noticed. People would rather have the pity of people than the comfort of Christ. They would rather have that. We would rather have people come up to us and say, Oh, I just, you're struggling so much, and I just my heart goes out to you, and I just could never do what you do, and I just feel so bad. And that it lifts them up. I like it when people feel bad for me. So we'd rather have the pity of people than the comfort of Christ. Here's the problem with that. The pity of people will get you through for a while. You know people like that. Every time you run into them, they have to tell you what's going wrong so you feel bad for them. They live off that. They thrive off that. Problem is, at 1 a.m., there's no one to give you pity. That's when you need the comfort of Christ. And I'm telling you right now, the comfort of Christ is eternal. The pity of people is temporary. When you really tap into the strength and comfort that God gives, that's what's going to help you through. Then all of a sudden, you find yourself glorying in tribulation. Therefore, when the physical, the emotional, and the spiritual happen, instead of looking for people to give you peace and comfort, you look to the Lord and you stop and you say, Lord, in the whole scheme of eternity, how can I keep my eyes on you, keep my focus on you, and give you glory through this? Because it's not about me and what I'm going through. It's about you getting the glory. But I tell you, we've got to get that mindset where we lose focus on us. Because so often, 
When we're going through physical, emotional, and spiritual struggles, we become so self-centered and focused. We really do. And it all is about us. The Lord says, no, no, no. In the midst of that trial, make it about me. Point people towards me. Give me the glory. Get the comfort of Christ. And what a blessing that will be. It's hard to change your mindset on that, folks. But look towards eternity, not towards the temporary right now. Now, we have to talk about a couple other things here. Look at verse 9. Man hears Paul speaking. Paul observes him intently. See that he has the faith to be healed. That word for observe him intently is a really interesting word. It means to really stare at. It doesn't mean just to glance and see. You know, when I'm teaching, I, I've joked about this before. I'm always looking through, you know, the group here. And, and I see people, they fall asleep. I see people bored. I see all of that. But when it's a larger group on a Sunday, it's easy to kind of look past that. Now, if I'm doing a small group study and there's only like maybe four or five of us, when that person falls asleep amongst five, that's a little harder to ignore. But at that point, I can really tell who's into it and who's getting it, etc. I, I see this with Paul. Here he is teaching, speaking. He sees this man. And the Lord stirs Paul's heart. And Paul says, I see something in this man. So in faith, stand up straight on your feet. And he leapt and walked. Oh, I absolutely love that. Love that. Now, how do the people respond to this? Verse 11, now when the people saw what Paul had done, they raised their voices, saying in the Lyconian language, the gods have come down to us in the likeness of men. And Barnabas they called Zeus and Paul Hermes. Some of your translations may say Jupiter and Mercury. Those would be the Greek and Roman names for their gods because he was the chief speaker. Then the priest of Zeus, whose temple was in front of their city, brought oxen and garlands to the gates, intending to sacrifice with the multitudes. But when the apostles Barnabas and Paul heard this, they tore their clothes and ran in among the multitudes, crying out and saying, Men, why are you doing these things? We also are men with the same nature as you. I just want to stop right there for a second. When I was studying and preparing this message, a pastor said, This is one of the most dangerous passages in the Bible. Because right here at this moment, Paul and Barnabas have to make a decision. Has anybody ever confused you for a God? Let me just ask you that. Have you ever walked into work and people said, I want to slaughter an animal for you because I really do believe that you are a God? That has never happened to you, has it? Imagine people stopping and thinking you are a God. Now, if you ever study out history and when you see like when the Spanish conquistadors came over and started speaking to the Native Americans, some of these Native Americans thought they were gods and the Spanish conquistadors said, I'll run with this. Now, that always causes problems. So here at this moment, this is really a big deal. Paul and Barnabas could have run with this for a while. They really could have. What would have come out of that? Nothing. Because our job is to point people to Jesus Christ. Our job is to point them towards the glory of him. I don't know who originally said it, and I would love to give them credit. I even looked it up, and I can't find the original source. But from very young in my walk with the Lord, and especially in ministry, I've always been told this. Don't touch the gold, don't touch the glory, and don't touch the girls. And there's a lot of truth to that. And I try to do that. I don't touch the gold. I don't have nothing to do with the money. If somebody comes and says, hey, you know, hey, something about help, I say, listen, this is the way the system works. I have no contact with the money for accountability purposes. And I have a degree in finance, but I still don't touch the money. Here you go. Try not to touch the glory. Do we really think this is us? Oh, man, it's the Lord. Richard likes to say this. God blesses this church in spite of us. 
We do everything we can to screw this up, and God still just keeps blessing it. It's God, not us. And as soon as you start thinking it's about you, be careful of any ministry, man, or church that is pointing the attention towards them. You are always deflecting back towards Jesus Christ. Matthew 5, 16, Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and do what? Glorify your Father in heaven. So they see you, but you reflect back to Jesus. And lastly, don't touch the girls. I remember hearing a teaching very young in my walk where the pastor said this. They said, how many of you back in high school were popular? Did girls line up to talk to you? Of course not. He says, but after every Sunday, who's lining up to talk to you? A lot of girls are lining up to talk to you. I remember it was John Hagee that said one time, if you've ever seen John Hagee, imagine him physically. He said one time from the pulpit, he says, you are not attracted to this. He goes, you're attracted to what I stand for. And there's a danger in that. There really is. And so you would try to point, you know, wives back to their husbands. Say, pray with them. We try to encourage them. Women minister to women. Men minister to men. Don't touch the money. Don't touch the gold, the glory, or the girls. And right here, what you're seeing in Acts 14, they could have run with this, and they didn't. Now, you have to know a little bit about Greek and Roman mythology. They believed at this time near the city of Lystra that one time Zeus and Hermes did come down. And they came down, they disguised themselves as men, and nobody would help them, so Zeus and Hermes wiped out the entire town. Now that was the mythology at the time. So they see Paul, they see Barnabas, and they say, we're not going to do this again. But Paul and Barnabas, look at verse 15, men, why are you doing these things? We also are men with the same nature as you. Now let's build on that. Can you go with me to John 1? John 1. The same nature as you. Now, that, that's used in another place. That's in the book of James, in James chapter 5, when it's talking about Elijah the prophet. Now, this is Elijah that could call fire down from heaven. This is Elijah that went up to heaven in the whirlwind. This is Elijah that uh, could make the rain stop. And the Bible said he had the same nature as you and I. Or what about here in John chapter 1? Let's talk about the greatest human being ever born. That's John the Baptist. And we know he's the greatest human ever born of a woman because Jesus himself said he's the greatest human ever born of a woman. Put that on your resume. That's a pretty powerful statement. If God himself says you're the greatest human born ever of a woman, what makes this guy so great? And to be honest with you, I think we miss out on John the Baptist. If Jesus says this guy is so great, I think we should go back and study him more often. Because if Jesus thinks he's great, what makes him so great? Let's find out. Verse 19, John 1. Now, this is the testimony of John. When the Jews sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, Who are you? He confessed and did not deny, but confessed, I'm not the Christ. We joked earlier, has everybody, anybody ever confused you with the God? No. Has anybody ever thought you were Jesus? No, not representing Jesus. Did anybody ever really think you were Jesus? No. They thought he could be really the Christ, the Messiah. Okay, then they say in verse 21, Are you Elijah? Because there was a prophecy about Elijah the prophet would come. He said, I am not. Are you the prophet? That goes back to Moses. Moses prophesied that there would be a prophet coming. He said, no. Then they said to him, who are you? That we may give an answer to those who sent us. What do you say about yourself? Look at his answer. He said, I am the voice of one crying in the wilderness. Make straight the way of the Lord, as the prophet Isaiah said. Because my job is to point people towards the Messiah. That's my only job. My job is to make the path straight for people to know Jesus Christ. Not bring glory to me, not bring attention to me. Later on, he says, I must decrease, and he, meaning Jesus, must increase. So what can we learn about the greatness of John? First thing we can learn is he just points people towards Jesus Christ. Verse 25, they asked him, saying, Then why do you baptize if you are not the Christ, nor Elijah, nor the prophet? 
John answered and said, I baptize with water, but there stands one among you whom you do not know. It is he who coming after me is preferred before me, whose sandal strap I'm not worthy to loose. What's this next thing we say about John? A humbleness. First thing, he points people towards the Messiah. The second thing, a humbleness. Verse 29. Next day, John saw Jesus coming toward him and he said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Third thing we see about John. Jesus, there he is. I'm pointing you towards him. I am not worthy to be near him. I'm humble. This is the guy, verse 30. This is he of whom I said, after me comes a man who is preferred before me, for he was before me. I did not know him, but that he should be revealed to Israel. Therefore, I came baptizing with water. And John bore witness, saying, I saw the Spirit descending from heaven like a dove, and he remained upon him. I did not know him, but he who sent me to baptize with water said to me, Upon whom you see the Spirit descending and remaining on him, this is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. I have seen and testified that this is the Son of God. Again, the next day John stood with two of his disciples and looking at Jesus. As he walked, he said, Behold the Lamb of God. The two disciples heard him speak and they followed Jesus. Did you catch that? John's with his own disciples and he points them towards Jesus. I'm not trying to grow a big ministry, he's saying. I'm not trying to make a big church. I'm not trying to have a mega church. I'm trying to point people towards Jesus Christ is John's goal. I'm going to make the path straight. I'm going to point people towards Jesus. I'm going to be humble about it. This is what makes John the Baptist so amazing. Point people towards Christ. Stay humble and never bring the glory to yourself. It always goes toward the Lord. And this is exactly what you see going on here with Paul and Barnabas as well. Why don't you jump back now to Acts 14. Don't touch the gold, don't touch the glory, and don't touch the girls here. What else happens then? Pick it up here in the middle of his message in verse 15. Preach to you that you should turn from these useless things to the living God, who made the heaven, the earth, the sea, and all the things that are in them, who in bygone generations allowed all nations to walk in their own ways. Nevertheless, he did not leave himself without witness, and that he did good, gave us rain from heaven and fruitful seasons, filling our hearts with food and gladness. And with these sayings, they could scarcely restrain the multitudes from sacrificing to them. I tell you, this little message here in verses 15 through 18 is really powerful. Paul answers so many questions, and I absolutely love it. First thing you see here is this idea of the living God, verse 15, who made the heaven and the earth. Verse 17, he did not leave himself without witness, and that he did good, gave us rain from heaven and fruitful seasons, filling our hearts with food and gladness. Every now and then I'll run into somebody. He wants to talk about the uh, aborigine living over in Australia or the Bushmen in Africa or somebody in the Amazon that has never heard the gospel. And how can a God of love, what do we do with that type of stuff? The Bible makes it abundantly clear that God has given them a witness. And that witness is his creation. That's exactly what it is. Keep your hand here and go to Romans chapter 1, please. Romans 1, just one book to the right. The Bible makes it clear people can know God exists. Psalm 19 says this, The heavens declare the majesty of God. If you go out on a clear night and you see the stars, you see the moon, you know, winter skies are beautiful. You can go out at night and you can see the Andromeda galaxy, you can see the nebula, you can see all this stuff even without a telescope. And you just stop and you realize, what am I looking at? This is just absolutely amazing. The heavens declare the majesty of God. Romans 1 goes even deeper. Take a look at verse 18. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth and unrighteousness. Because what may be known of God is manifest in them, for God has shown it to them. For since the creation of the world, His invisible attributes 
are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even as eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse. God says, I have proven my existence to the world by creation. That's enough proof. Please remember this, guys. You are never asked in the Bible to prove God exists. You're never asked to do that. He says, I'll take care of that myself. Can you imagine serving a God that was so small that he needed you to prove that he exists? Can you imagine that? The God that you serve says, hey, I got one problem. I can't prove my own existence. Can you really help me with that? No, God says you don't have to worry about proving I exist. Creation is a big enough witnessing tool. Acts 14 is saying this. Romans chapter 1 is saying this. That's enough. New Living Translation reads the Romans 1 passage like this, and I think it's very, very good. For ever since the world was created, people have seen the earth and the sky. Through everything God made, they can clearly see His invisible qualities, His eternal power and divine nature, so they have no excuse for not knowing God. That's quite the testimony right there. I firmly believe this. I believe the Bible backs this up. We see this in Acts chapter 9 with Philip and the Ethiopian eunuch. If there was somebody in the middle of the Amazon, somebody in the middle of Africa, somebody in the middle of Australia that looks up in the middle of the night, sees the moon, sees the stars, and says, I think there's something more out there, and I believe there's something bigger than me out there, and I want to know him, I firmly believe God will connect a missionary to that person. That's what I see in the Bible. The Ethiopian eunuch wanted to know who Jesus was. The Lord, through the Holy Spirit, sent Philip right to him. This is why it's so important to support missionaries. You may not be called to go there, but other people are. So you're called to support them financially and in prayer. And maybe you need to pray yourself to see if the Lord's calling you to go do something. I was reading some quotes recently by some people that went into the mission field. And the question came up saying, why did you go to the mission field? And they said this, and I thought this was really good. They said, you know... I'm here now telling people for the second, third, fourth, fifth, sixth, seventh time about Jesus when there's half the world hasn't even heard about him for the first time. There's a lot of truth to that. And I also said, too, here I am constantly talking to people about the second coming when half the world hasn't heard about the first coming. Now, it doesn't mean that you don't go out there and tell people two, three, four, five, six, seven times about the gospel. Don't take it that way. It doesn't mean you do not focus on the return of Jesus Christ. Those are biblical. But for certain people, there's a stirring in their heart to say, I want to go. And if that's not you, that's fine. You go be a mission where God has called you. And if you're a missionary here in Northwest Ohio, then be the greatest missionary you can for Christ. But for those that feel led to go someplace else, we pray for them. We support them. And what God is doing, He has already planted in these people's minds, there's something bigger. There's there's something out there. The heavens declare the majesty of God. So I don't have to sit here and worry about proving the existence of God. God already took care of that. I don't have to sit here and say, okay, but now there's somebody in the middle of the Amazon that's dying and they're going right to hell and how unfair is that? No, I serve a God that's very fair. I serve a God that's very just. I serve a God who's a God of grace. He will connect the people together for the gospel to be spread. And what Paul was telling the people at Lystra is here, listen, you have the witness that God is out there. He goes, you have the rains from heaven. You have the fruitful seasons. You have the food that grows that you can't explain. That's all a witness and testimony to something bigger than you out there. Now, verse 18. And with these things, they could scarcely restrain the multitudes from sacrificing to them. Please remember that verse. Verse 19. Then Jews from Antioch and Iconium came there, and having persuaded the multitude, they stoned Paul and drugged him out of the city, supposing him to be dead. Verses 18 and 19 are the bookends of ministry. One day they love you, and the next day they want to stone you. That is really how it is. Paul has a great passage in 2 Corinthians 12 that says this, The more I love you, the more you hate me. 
There's a lot of truth to that. That really is the coin of ministry. Verse 18, you are loved. And then verse 19, you are hated. If you really want to get involved in any type of ministry, just being a light and a witness at work, you're going to share the Lord with people and they're going to love you. They're going to get saved and amen. Then a few weeks, a few months later, they're going to have a situation in their life and they're going to come to you and you're going to say, well, you know, the Bible says that that's not right. And then they're going to hate you for speaking truth. I don't know how many times over the years that has happened. People have come and you get to know them and they're like, oh, Pastor James, you're the greatest. We just love you. We love the church. We love how you teach. We love how you're there. We just love everything about you. Thank you. And then next thing you know, there's a situation that pops up and you hear things like, you know what? We never did like this church. We never did like you. We never liked the way you taught. Um, We don't really like what you're doing. And that's just my wife saying those things. I mean, imagine. Imagine. Hi, honey. (laughs) She's actually in today. I see her back there. She just... uh, she just, she just gave me a look. Um, but, but that's the truth of it. I mean, I, I really, I'm really not joking on this. There's a reason why when God called Ezekiel to the ministry, when, if you go back and read the beginning of Ezekiel, one of the first things he told Ezekiel is pray that you could have a head as hard as flint. Now think about that. So before you go into the ministry, the Lord is saying, Hey, Ezekiel, make your head hard because they're going to come at you. They're going to attack you with words. They're going to come at you. You've got to be prepared for this. Ministry is not for the thin-skinned. And you may say, this is why I'm not in the ministry. Tough luck, you're in the ministry. The word minister just means to serve. That's all it means. If you were here this morning and you are born again in Jesus Christ, you are in the ministry. So you are there proclaiming the gospel. And you're going to have a love-hate thing with people. They're going to love you one day and hate you the next. They'll love you when you say what they want to hear. And they'll hate you when you start saying the truth that they don't want to hear. And it's going to get worse as end times goes. Paul talks about in 2 Timothy how at end times people will have itching ears. They'll hear what they want to hear, and that's all they want to do. We kind of jokingly call it uh, cotton candy Christianity. It's just cotton candy. It sounds good. It tastes good, but there's no depth. There's no fruit. There's no nothing. But people like it. Here with Paul, they loved him one day. They wanted to sacrifice to him. Verse 19, people come in. Next thing you know, Paul is drugged out of the city, supposing to be dead. Verse 20, however, when the disciples gathered around him, he rose up and went into the city. And the next day, he departed with Barnabas to Derba. That's kind of amazing right there. They stone him, think he's dead, and next thing you know, he's standing up. Now, we've got to talk about this for a little bit. Can you go with me to 2 Corinthians 12? 2 Corinthians 12. And I've got to be honest with you, this is a touchy subject. You know, um, it seems like there's cycles in Christianity. And, and we get on little tangents for a while. And next thing you know, everybody is writing a book about a certain topic. Everybody is making a movie about a certain topic. Everybody's preaching about a certain time. And then that topic kind of dies out. And then we grab a new topic. And it kind of goes in these two, three-year cycle type thing. We're in a cycle right now, it seems like to me, where everybody is talking about people that have died and gone to heaven or hell for a while and come back. And, and it's, it's a real big thing to certain people. And it's always a difficult subject to talk about because people sometimes are very, very passionate about this. And the only thing I'm going to say is this. Can we just agree to stick to the Scriptures? Let's see what the Scriptures say about this. 2 Corinthians 12, verse 1. It is doubtless not profitable for me to boast. I will come to visions and revelations of the Lord. Okay, background. Paul is being attacked as an apostle. And they don't think he's a real apostle. 
And so what's happening in 2 Corinthians, he very begrudgingly through the Spirit, finally around chapter 11, says, you know what? You want my credentials to be an apostle. Here are my credentials. And if you got some time, go read 2 Corinthians 11 in the end, where Paul lists everything physically, emotionally, and spiritually he went through as an apostle. So he gets to chapter 12, and he, and he drops the biggest one. Now, he never says it's him per se, but you can kind of make a line if you want from Acts 14 to 2 Corinthians 12, or you can think it's talking about someone else. It doesn't matter. The point's still the same. What happens? Verse 2. I know a man in Christ who 14 years ago, whether in the body I do not know, or whether out of the body I do not know, God knows such a one was called up to the third heaven. Now, there's three heavens mentioned in the Bible. First heaven is what you see, the clouds. Second heaven is the moon and the stars. The third heaven is what's considered the abode of God. So this person was taken to the third heaven. Verse 3, And I know such a man, whether in the body or out of the body, I do not know, God knows, he was called up into paradise, heaven, and heard inexpressible words, which it's not lawful for a man to utter. So Paul says, I know this guy, and Paul could be talking about himself, who says, I know this guy that went up to heaven, and what's the great revelation from it? I can't talk about it. I'm not permitted to talk about it. I'm not allowed to talk about it, is what he says. In fact, it would be a sin for me to talk about it. Now, I just want you to remember this passage, and I'm not trying to step on anybody's toes. I just want us to be biblical on how we do things. Please think back to everybody that has been raised from the dead in the Bible. Lazarus, Tabitha, synagogue's leaders, 12-year-old daughter. We can just go down the list. Do you realize there's not a single recorded statement of what they thought it was like? I mean, Lazarus, the guy should at least have a verse in the Bible, don't you think? He spent three days dead. Tabitha, you know, synagogue's leaders. I mean, all these different people, there's nothing recorded about about it. And then you have this here in 2 Corinthians 12 where Paul says, listen, I know the guy went up there and I'm not going to talk about it. I'm not permitted. I'm not allowed. It would be a sin to do because it's inexpressible. And I think just sometimes we've got to be careful with certain things that we have to stick to what the Bible says. And sometimes that's not the most popular thing, but we've got to be biblical in these type of things because if not, we start going down paths that we probably shouldn't go down. So let's jump back now here to Acts 14. So what happens now in verse 21? When they had preached the gospel to that city and made many disciples, they returned to Lystra, Iconium, and Antioch. Please know what Paul is doing. He circles back to the city that just stoned him. He circles back to Iconium, the city that chased him out of town. He goes back to the people that tried to kill him, and he goes back to the people that quite possibly did kill him. And what does he say to them? Verse 22, strengthening the souls of the disciples, exhorting them to continue in the faith and saying, we must through many tribulations enter the kingdom of God. That is a testimony right there. I'm going to go back to the exact same towns that threatened me, tried to kill me, possibly did kill me, and tell those believers that we must through many tribulations enter the kingdom of God. That's amazing and that's powerful. See, as Christians, I think we kind of ignore the fact of how difficult Christianity is. Just remember the words of Jesus. The path is narrow. It is difficult. Few will find it. Jesus in John 16, in this world you will have tribulation. But take heart, I have overcome the world. Paul in 2 Timothy 3, anyone who desires to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. It is inevitable. It is going to happen. That's why we go back to the first points we made. We wait upon the Lord. For you that are struggling here today, spiritually, emotionally, physically, does it ever cross our minds, verse 22, 
to say, wow, I could use this for the glory of God. See, it goes back to that point earlier. Do I want the pity of people or the comfort of Christ? See, Lord, I'm going through something that's really difficult. It's emotionally difficult. It's spiritually difficult. It's physically difficult. I'm not going to fake it. I'm not going to lie. When somebody says, how you're doing, I'm not just going to sit there and say, oh, great, Jesus is on the throne. I'm going to be honest, but I'm also going to give you the glory. I'm going to make sure people know that in this trial and tribulation, my faith is not wavering. It's staying focused on you. I'm going to make sure people know that I'm giving you the glory in all that I say and all that I do. But see, so often we allow that physical, emotional, or spiritual thing to control us rather than Christ. And we have to realize these trials, these tribulations are there to grow us in all ways. That's why Paul said in verse 22, to continue in the faith. We talked about this just last week. New Year's Eve, it's last Sunday. New Year's resolutions. How many people will start something, but will they continue it? See, we're not looking for you to start. We're looking for you to continue. And I want you to continue in the faith. That's why I thought it was so important to end this morning with communion. Because there are trials and tribulations. People are struggling physically, emotionally, spiritually. It is difficult. It's hard to wait. That's why it's so important to have this moment to go to the Lord. What would we do in the midst of the greatest pain you can imagine? Would we stop and say, Lord, I give you the glory. Lord, I look at this as an opportunity. Or would I just sit there and focus only on me? We were just reading a devotional last night, and it was about a woman that was a missionary uh, in Mexico. So she went down there with her family, her husband, and some other people. And uh, they were celebrating her daughter's 10-year, uh, she was 10, turned 10 years old, so they are having her 10th birthday party, and they were having it on the beach. And so a couple of the missionary friends and her husband and her daughter went out into the ocean, and the uh, undercurrent got a hold of them. And her daughter died, her husband died. And the two other missionaries that were down there with him all died at her daughter's 10-year party as a missionary down in Mexico. And so as the bodies were there on the beach and they were dead, she was on the knees, just obviously just distraught beyond distraught. And then all of a sudden this group of people came around because that's what happens in tragedies. And she said, I had a moment right there where I realized my husband and my daughter and those two other missionaries, I know exactly where they're at. She goes, but I don't know where these other people are at. So she stopped right there in front of the bodies of her family, and she witnessed those people, and she said to them, this could be your body laying in the sand. She goes, do you know where you're going to go? And right then and there, she witnessed and gave God the glory because she knew where her family was. And she said at that point then, the Lord moved it. The church started in that area that's still going on to this day. Now, that's a pretty extreme example. To give God the glory in that difficult of a time. When you read Paul saying, we must through many tribulations enter the kingdom of God. Most of us aren't dealing with something like that. Most of us are dealing with a physical issue that's not going away. Maybe we're dealing with a financial issue where things are tight. We're dealing with an emotional issue where we've been hurt, we've been wrong. We're dealing with a spiritual issue of, I'm just struggling. But can we give God the glory during that time? Because really what it comes down to is this. If he is good and does good, do we trust that? His time frame is different than ours. His definition of good is different than ours. But can we wait upon the Lord during this time? Can we trust that the Lord is moving and working even when we don't see it? And that's what I want us to do here as we get ready to finish with communion. Because go back one more point here. Take a look at verse 15. That you should turn from these useless things to the living God. The idea of the useless things, the vanity things, the worthless things. I'm just asking you, 
What do you invest most of your time in? People invest their time in a lot of crazy things. Sometimes it's just leisure. I invest my time in nothing. I invest my time in a television. I invest my time in games. You can invest your time in home improvement projects. You can invest your time in edifying yourself and getting your name out there. Really what Paul says in verse 15 is those things are all useless, vain, worthless things. Invest your time in the Lord. And when you do that, all of a sudden you're going to keep an eternal perspective in all that you do and all that you say. Now, guys, this is a tough thing to get your mind changed to. Because the society we live in is a very self-centered, focused society. And we're trying to learn from Jesus, from Paul, from John the Baptist. We must decrease. He must increase. I must point people towards him. That's what we want to do. So, as we get ready to do this, let's get ready for communion. Um, Bob, if you're here, you can go grab the kids and bring them in for communion. I want us to pray this into our lives. See, as we get ready to partake of communion, there's a great passage in Corinthians where it says, before we do communion, we're supposed to examine ourselves. And it says in uh, Psalm 139, Search me and try me, O Lord. See if there's any iniquity in me and lead me in the way of everlasting. It's important before we partake of communion that there's a time of self-examination and there's a time of going to the Lord saying, Lord, what do I need to work on? See, I can make a list of what I think I need to work on. Yeah, I gave my life over to the Lord. So it's what he thinks I need to work on. And what matters most is what he thinks. So we take this time to quiet our hearts, quiet ourselves, give ourselves over to the Lord, and say, Lord, you examine us. You search us. You try us. You look for those things that need to change. And that's what we want to do. So as Bob is getting the kids around, so it may get a little loud here as the kids come in, and parents, we usually have the kids just come sit with you. Let's take some time now and quiet our hearts before the Lord with this. Lord, as we come to you now, we want to do this. We want to have a time of self-examination. We want to have a time of your spirit searching us, trying us of what needs to change. Lord, there's so many worthless, vain things out there that are useless. We don't want to focus on that anymore. We want to focus on the living God. Lord, there's people here this morning that are just struggling. Boy, they're struggling. Show them the importance of waiting on you, the comfort of Christ that we can glory in tribulation. We want to live it, not just talk about it, but live it. And so for right here, right now, whatever areas in our life that are keeping us from going full in you, reveal that, help us to confess that, and repent of that. Let's take these to the Lord. Lord, it's so easy to feel overwhelmed at this point. But I thank you for being a God of grace, a God of love, a God of mercy, a God of patience. Thank you. We love you and we praise you in your name. Amen. If the guys that are helping with communion want to come forward here in the worship team.